on Sunday mornings in the 11 o'clock hour, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the message that God gives there, that the Lord Jesus Christ gives there, is uh, to the disciples. It was not to the multitudes, uh, but was specifically given to His disciples to teach and to train them in discipleship and the things that He desires in their life. We've spent some time dealing with the fact that there's a cost involved. It's not the same as being the multitudes. These men that He was teaching had forsaken their boats. They'd forsaken their nets. In one case, they even forsook their own father and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a price to be paid to be a disciple. And really, there is a choice after we're saved... Uh, whether we're going to be part of the multitude or whether we're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. His desire is that every one of us uh, be a disciple, to trust Him, not only with our soul security, but with our manner of life, the way we live once we are saved, and that we're to follow His Word in what it teaches us. Um, Understanding this, that from the time the Lord Jesus called His disciples, Until he ascended to heaven, he spent all of those three and a half years teaching them and training them how they should be inwardly, what they should do outwardly, and where their strength and dependence should come from. And it took three and a half years of the Lord Jesus Christ being with these men pretty much every day and teaching and training them. And even at the end of all of that, they were still not perfect, were they? They still had not arrived, and there was still some growth that needed to take place. And in fact, until the day that each of them died, they were striving and trying to be more of what God wanted them to be. This ought to be the desire of every Christian's heart. It ought to be the thing that we long for, that we press toward that mark for the prize. The mark is always the exampleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, to become as much like Him as we possibly can. I say that very carefully because anytime we talk about trying to become like, and we use that phrase, it seems to turn inwardly to our efforts and to our attempts and to what we understand Christ to be like. And yet we've got to understand that when it, when it comes to us becoming like Christ, the only source we have to know how to do that is not what we think Christ to be, but His Word. To follow His Word and see how Christ is. There's a lot of men who think the Lord Jesus Christ is a certain way. There are men that use their perception of what they think Christ to be like to justify uh, the morals that go contrary to God's Word. For instance, they may say God is forgiving and God is loving. And they use that, that truth, that is a truth, to excuse their sinful condition. And so we've got to be careful that we don't come to it from our understanding of Christ, but what the Bible says about Him. Take it at face value. Learn from the Scriptures what is Christ like and the desire that we should have. Luke chapter number 14. I want to share with you this afternoon seven things that I believe we can find in this passage of what disciples should do. What, what, what is it that should characterize us? What are some of the things that ought to be prevalent in our life? The other thing I would caution you about is, again, anytime we say we need to be like, is we oftentimes will make an exterior 
attempt to appear what we think the Lord Jesus Christ is like without there being an inner transforming work. And anytime we come to a list of things, and I believe in the afternoon services, I try to be as very practical to give us a lot of how-tos from Scripture. But in doing that, we've got to understand that there has to be a transforming work of the heart in order for these to be consistent in our lives. We can, somebody said years ago, we can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all of the time, and eventually our character will reveal itself. Uh, very, very important that we learn that the inner man uh, must be changed and must have the desire for these things in order for them to be accomplished in our lives. So let's take a look at this. We're going to move um, in, a, in a timely manner. I understand the lateness of the hour. We're getting a little bit of a late start today, um, but uh, I, I will be conscious of the time. But I do want us to make sure that we do justice about it. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, which of you have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him up out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Jesus both poses the question and then gives the answer to it. Because the Pharisees and the lawyers, while they may have had their opinions, did not want to voice something that they knew would be probably self-condemning. Because while they understood the point that Jesus was making, and I'm certain they were smart enough to understand that, they neither, did want, they neither did want to condemn themselves by what they understood the law to mean. Jesus is speaking here, and He talks about the fact of this man who had a need, a physical need. And we find that Jesus demonstrates, even though the law speaks of the Sabbath and to keep it holy, that they were not to do any work or labor on the Sabbath regarding uh, the, the, the normal commonality of the other six days of working, that there should be something special about this day. He does point out the fact that when it comes to the care of others, the compassion on others, that there is no time frame on that, and that we can glorify God and we can honor the Sabbath, and in this case they were honoring, be able to honor the Sabbath, by, by the very fact that they did care for this man, that he did have compassion upon him. And so one of the first things that I believe every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, ought to have as part of their life is they need to have a concern and a compassion for others above all else. There needs to be a, 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 a legitimate and an honest, uh, with the Bible calls uh, our faith sometimes to have faith unfeigned meaning not to have fake faith uh, or false faith or pretend faith. Can I say this? When it comes to our compassion and our care for others, I believe that the Bible teaches very clearly, and I think the Lord Jesus Christ Himself sets the example here, that when it comes to the care of meeting the needs of others, that we need to be willing to do that at any time. We need to be watchful for these things. We need to be aware of them. 
The Bible speaks quite often of not withholding good to them when it's within our power to do something good for them, to be a help to them and to look for others. There are times that uh, when we try to help other people, um, they say, oh, I don't want you to bother. Uh, I, I don't want you to have to do that. And uh, I was uh, helping somebody the other day, and uh, it's been, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth time I, I, I was helping them with something. And they said, I don't want you to feel like you have to do it. And I said, if I felt like I had to do it, then it wouldn't be what I'm supposed to be doing. I said, it's something we do because we want to do this. It's something that is a need in somebody's life, and we have the ability to meet that need. There ought to be the desire to help someone at all times. We don't just have seasons of it. We don't have moments of it. We don't just think of others when we're in church on Sunday or when we're in church on Wednesday night. But as we go through the week, do we see others that have needs? The day we live in, really, do you have to look any further than your own front doorstep, hardly, to find somebody that has a need? Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe it's just being able to share the gospel with someone who needs to hear it. But to have a care and compassion for others... I've never known a person to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ yet who does not have a love, not only for the Lord Jesus Christ, but for others. When the lawyer asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment of Scripture, he answered him and he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. I have no doubt of that. In fact, you'll find a little bit later in this chapter that Jesus says if, if you don't hate your father and mother and sister and brother for Christ's sake, uh, then you're not my disciple. And he's not speaking there of hating our families, but he's saying you know how much you love your families. You need to love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that it looks like the love that you have for them is hatred. And the idea being that there is such a, uh, a love for the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. And I don't think any of us would would say that the Lord, uh, that there, or we would deny that the Lord stated that is the greatest commandment of Scripture. We have no doubt of that. But he went on to answer the lawyer. He said, the second is like unto it. Second only to loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. A mark of a true disciple. Do we care for others? Do we have time for others? Do we take the time for others? Have you ever noticed how self-centered we are by nature? We were talking in the 11 o'clock hour. We are sinners. Uh, it's our specialty. It's what we do best. It's our nature. It's not our desire, but it is the makeup of our flesh. And if we're not careful, we will become, even, even in our Christian lives... We will become all about what's in it for me. Even if we're not careful in helping others, it will become about, how does this make me feel? I'm helping somebody else because it really makes me feel good, or because people think very highly of me when they see me doing this. And the truth of the matter is, it ought to be a selfless love and compassion for others. It shouldn't be about us. It shouldn't be about what we do. So the first thing I think that we find in a disciple is that they have a genuine and unfeigned compassion and care for others. Whether it be another brother and sister in Christ or another lost person, that we have compassion upon them. Number two, look in verse number seven. And he put forth a parable to those that were bidden, 
And when he marked how those, uh, how they chose out the chief rooms, saying, uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up, start again. I misread it. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou be begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit in the lowest room, and when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meet with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be what? And he that humbleth himself shall be what? Exalted. Number two, I think in any true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, our service... Our working and laboring for the Lord needs to be done with humility. It needs to be done with humility. Humility is one of those hard things to preach and teach on, isn't it? About the time we think we've got a handle on our, our pride, we get proud of the fact that we've got a handle on our pride. Humility is one of those very, very difficult things to work and to labor towards. I heard a fellow give a definition. I think he's one of the greatest definitions of humility I've ever heard. And uh, he made this statement. He said, Humility is not thinking higher of ourselves than we ought, but neither is it thinking less of ourselves than we ought. He said, It is simply not thinking of ourselves. That's true humility. When we take ourselves out of the equation, we are not in it for us. And we find in verse number 11 one of the great principles that Jesus is teaching here. He says, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, we don't want to make a false pretense of humility and, and make ourselves the, the martyr so that people can honor us and say, Oh, wow, look how humble that person is. But there needs to be an inner genuineness of our character that revolves around humility. We've been preaching on the Beatitudes, and the first three of them deal with what we are inwardly. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. To realize that we are poor. The, the, the challenge, the letter to the church at Laodicea in uh, Revelation chapter 3, they thought they were uh, rich and well-off, increased with goods, and had need of nothing, and Jesus told them, He said, Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This church knew how to look good outwardly. They knew how to dress right. They carried the right kind of Bible. They came to the church services three times a week or however often the church at Laodicea did. From every external appearance, the church looked right. What was the problem? The problem was their heart. They had a level of arrogance and pride in how well they could outwardly conform to a pattern of Christianity rather than having a sense of humility at the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God in the heart of man. The truth is, anything that we are outwardly, it is not the result of the work that we have done. You may say, well, Pastor, I've worked hard to be this way. Okay, but who did the work? Hopefully it was the Holy Spirit. 
If all we did was do it of our own labor and our own efforts, the truth is we've done it as a prideful thing. We've done it so that we can appear some way to some other person. But God knows the heart, doesn't He? And He sees if there's humility or if there's pride there. And He's the one we're trying to impress. He's the one we want the approval of. He's the one we want to please. Not men. So there needs to be a level of humility in the, in the Christian life, and especially if we're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it needs not be something that is just an external facade, but a true spirit inwardly of our poverty of spirit, of our meekness, of our own brokenness over our sin, our inability in our own strength to serve the Lord appropriately. Our own ability to live the way we should without Christ's help. And a full dependence upon Him. We need to have a sense of humility about us if we're going to be a true disciple. Number three, look in verse number 12. Then said He also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Number three, live to minister to others. Don't labor based on what's in it for me. You don't, you don't do something to serve the Lord expecting you to get something in return for it on this side of heaven. I don't, I don't try to do something nice for somebody because I know that they'll do something nice in return. And this is the point that Jesus is speaking here. He says, don't call your friends and your brethren and your kinsmen, your rich neighbors, because when you, when you have them over for dinner, then they're going to feel obligated to have you over for dinner. And the, the, the chance of you doing it simply because of what you gain out of it is a very high likelihood. He said, rather, when you make a dinner, and he's speaking here of you doing the work and the labor, the service. When you're serving, make it for others who can't pay you back, who can't have you over for their dinner at their house. Because you're not worried about what is in it for you. You know that your reward is going to be in heaven. When we labor and serve the Master here on this side of heaven, I fear that far too often we have hirelings in ministry. People that look at, what is in it for me? What can I get out of this? Rather than, I want to serve and I want to help people who cannot, who cannot recompense. They can't, they can't give back. They can't come back and say, well, because of all you've done for me, let me do this now for you. I'm appalled sometimes when I look around at some of the quote-unquote religious leaders of our nation. How selective they are at who they personally reach out and interact with. When was the last time I, I liked, I think Miss Penny posted this the other day, why is it that all these faith healers don't go to the hospitals? Because the hospitals don't take up a big offering. Why, why is it that these people are only in it for what they can get out of it? They can get wealth. They can get fame. They can, they can have people look at them and speak about them. They can have a New York Times best-selling book. 
as disciples, that should not be our motivation to serve. I would have more respect for a man who served humbly before his God, who when men began to sit up and take notice of him and said, boy, we'd love to have you come preach at our conference. Why don't you write a book on that? He would just simply say, no, you know, I'm not interested. I'm too busy serving the Lord. I can't come down off the wall to take time to do those things. Why? Because you got a man there that's not in it for what, he's, what he can get out of it. You're not going to have a woman there that's serving in the ministry simply for the, uh, for the recognition of other people in the church. But you're going to have somebody who has a servant's heart, who just wants to be a blessing to people, and realizes that their reward comes later, not on this side of heaven. Number four, look in verse number 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat the bread, or eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. The servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And I tell you, number four, let's be diligent to invite people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be diligent. And I'm going to use that word diligent because we find something that takes place here. We find when the servant is obedient to his master and goes out, the first thing he meets with is resistance and people that make every kind of excuse there is. Material things, family things, relationship things. Oh, I appreciate it. You're very kind, but I'm not interested. And it is very easy, is it not, for us to become frustrated and discouraged by that and to say, you know what, it's no use, I'm just going to quit. Ever been there? This pastor has. It's easy to get frustrated, but the master said, no, no, you can't quit now. He said, I'll tell you what, if these people don't want to come, go out and find somebody who does want to come. Go out and find those that are in the hedges and the highways and compel them to come in. Go out and find the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And when those poor and the halt and the maimed and the blind came in, there was still room to go. And so we find a second principle here. Don't get discouraged by those that make excuses, but also don't get to the place where you reach some and you say, boy, I can sit down and rest now. I've done my work. There is yet room. I find that there are two times that Christians quit serving the Lord. When they are, when they are uh, discouraged because of lack of fruit, and when they have accomplished something and seen fruit and feel like their job is done. Notice the third lesson is taught here, that even after the fruit was born and there were those who had come to the Master's table, He said, now I want you to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them. 
to put forth a strenuous argument, to put forth a, 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 a passionate plea, to continue until one of two things happen. Until your life is over or the Master's table is full. Since we know on this side of heaven during our lifetime the Master's table will never be full. That only leaves us one alternative. To continue to serve and to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ until we're called home to glory. We don't get discouraged. We don't get to the place where we're apathetic because we've had some fruit. We feel like our task is done. But we continue to labor and labor and labor. And we work and we labor and we compel people. We work and strive and we're diligent in this area of bringing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, when do I get to quit? When do I get to rest? When we get to heaven. Oh, what a wonderful rest it will be too if we've been diligent this side of heaven. Number five, look with me in verse number 27. If any man come to me... Uh, so let's back up. Uh, yeah. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children, brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This is an idea of uh, uh, getting to the place where we are... Uh, I'm sorry, verse number 27 is where I also want to go. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I want you to notice a couple of things. That we need to bear the cross that God has given to us to bear. And there's a couple things about this. Number one... Bearing a cross takes some effort, and it's going to cost us some things. I'm thankful that the yoke that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us is a light yoke. It's an easy yoke. But there is some cost to it. And the word bear gives the idea that there is something that is is going to cause us some difficulty along the way. There's something that's going to take some effort on our part. There's something that's going to cost us something. Um, when I was a kid, every once in a while, uh, something wouldn't go my way or I'd get hurt or something, and my mom would use the phrase, Greg, just grin and bear it. What she means is, yes, it's not pleasant, but you need to bear up under the load. He tells them in verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross... And then I want you to notice not only this, but not only is there a cross that needs to be borne, but it is each person his own cross. I'm not called to bear your cross. Neither are you called to bear mine. But God has a cross for every one of us to bear. God has a work for each of us to do. It's not the same for everybody. And so we must understand what our cross is and then be willing to bear it. There is a personal responsibility to my commitment to do the work that God has given me to do. I'm not going to have my motives judged for the work that you do. I'm not going to have my faithfulness judged by the work that you do. But all of that will be judged by what I do. The work that God has given for me has my motive been right? Has my faithfulness to it and my diligence to it been right? Have I borne the cross faithfully? Have I been steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord? 
I must be the one to give an account for it myself. And by the way, the same holds true for you. Every single one of us sitting here today, if you're married, you are not responsible for the accountability of your spouse and the work they have to do. But you are responsible for yours. Oh, that we would learn this truth. We need to learn to bear our cross. We'd be responsible personally for, for our own commitment to the Lord in serving Him. I've heard Christians, I've had some come to me and talk with me about it. Sad to say, there have probably been a few times in my life I can look back on where I have done a similar thing. And that is that I have become critical of someone else's service to the Lord. Can I tell you this? That's none of my business. It's all I can do to make sure my service for the Lord is what it should be. It's all I can do to focus on the things that God has given me to do and to do them well and to do them diligently. Now, I think we ought to encourage each other in the work that each each of us has. I think if a brother is overtaken in a fault, we certainly have a responsibility to bear them up and to help them through that fault and to restore them in a spirit of meekness. But I am not called to criticize your service for the work that God has called you to do. I think Satan sits back and laughs. I really believe this. I believe at least he is gleeful and merry in his heart when he sees good men, faithful men, preaching the gospel that become critical of another's ministry. Not my responsibility. It's all I can do to be accountable for Kepha Heights Baptist Church. And by the way, whatever the work is that God has given you to do, it's all you can do to focus on the work He's given you to do. If you've got time and energy to focus on somebody else's work, then you're not being diligent enough in yours. I don't know about you, but the task that the Lord's given me, I don't find a whole lot of free time left over at the end of the day. There's a lot of work involved in it. And when there's not work, there's some time I need to spend with the Lord to get my own batteries recharged. Get my own life back on track. It seems to be a constant battle. It seems to be something that it takes pretty much all that I have. And it ought to be the same for you. We need to learn to bear our own cross. To be willing to pay the price. Number six. Look in verse number 28. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest aptly after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able to uh, with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desire, desireth conditions of peace. If we're not careful, we'll misread this passage. It talks about sitting down and counting the cost before we start on the tower, before we start laboring. And if we're not careful, we'll get from this that, well, if I just don't think I have it in me, then I better not start to begin with. That is not the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making here. The point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making here is that we count the cost 
And no matter what it is, we serve anyway. To count not our life dear. To hold nothing back. To labor until the last ounce of energy flows from this body. We don't count the cost and then say, I'm not going to do it because I don't think I have enough to do it. We count the cost, realize our insufficiency, and then say, Lord, I'm going to give everything I have. And what I lack, you're going to have to make up the difference for. But I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up in the service. He speaks of the fact that when verse number uh, verse number uh, 31 about those that uh, will will sit down, uh, will uh, begin to criticize in verse number 32. I'm sorry. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. The purpose of this and the context that it is written in is not to say don't start the project. The purpose of it is is to count the cost, realize our insufficiency, and say, but Lord, I'm going to give everything I've got to accomplish it. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to give everything I've got to it. Notice number seven in our last one. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all... That he hath. He cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty big standard, isn't it? Don't raise your hand, but ask yourself this question today. Is there any among us in this room on the 25th day of September, 26th day, whatever day it is, that have literally gotten to the place in our lives that we have forsaken all in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a weighty statement. Somebody told D.L. Moody years ago, the world has yet to see what a man wholly yielded to God can do. D.L. Moody did his best to accomplish that. He said, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And he made every attempt to do so. The truth is, our world still has never seen a man that has been fully and wholly yielded to him. So what is he speaking of here? Is he speaking of our ability to surrender all? I don't believe so. I think he's speaking here of our desire to forsake all. The flesh nature will always hold back and resist. But to have the desire of the inner man to say, Lord, I want to give you everything I have. I may not succeed at it all the time, but it is my heart's desire to do so. Salt is good. Verse 34, I want you to notice this. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Number seven. As a disciple, we need to labor to influence the world with the truth of God. We need to labor to influence the world 
with the truth of God. Simply said, we need to preach the Word. It is the answer to the world. Very, very important that we labor not in our own flesh, not in our own power, not in our own thoughts, arguments, philosophy, logic, morality, but we need to influence the world with the truth that is found in this book. And we need to make a difference. A lot of Christians have so watered down what they've read in this book, they've so neglected the study of it, that when it comes to trying to be a servant for the Lord, to be a disciple, when it comes time to labor, the truth is there's a lot of shame in our lack of preparedness to be workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. Are we willing to give all? Are we willing to forsake all in order to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? In Matthew 4, we've been studying the Beatitudes, and just before He met with His disciples to begin teaching and training them, He went along the seashore, and He saw James and John, He saw Andrew and Peter, and to both sets He said, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. The Bible says immediately for one of them and straightway for the other. They didn't sit and debate. They didn't have to come to a point of decision and say, well, I'll have to pray about it. The Bible says immediately, straightway. They left their nets. They left their boats. One group of them, left James and John, left their father and followed him. I think it could be safely said that they were willing to forsake all to follow Him. Were there still areas of their life that needed to be yielded to Christ? Oh, absolutely. He worked on them for three and a half years about it, didn't He? And He kept chipping away at it, and a little bit more, and a little bit more at a time. So it was not their ability to forsake all. It was their desire. Their desire to forsake all. To pursue after that. To say, Lord, more than anything, I want Your will done in my life. I'm willing to give it all so that I might gain You. I may follow after You. May I be a disciple of You. But it's going to cost us. It's going to take a price. It's going to take some consecration. It's going to take some commitment. And I'm not talking about the kind of commitments we make oftentimes to one another, but a commitment that will not be broken to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to have this desire in my life to forsake all so I can follow You. I want You more than anything in this world. I want You. May we learn to be disciples of Him. Let's stand together and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You'll help us as we labor in these days, the last several weeks focusing in on this subject. May we learn from Your Word the things that You have to show us, to teach us about being disciples. Lord, there is a cost in the day that we've lived. It has been something that we have oftentimes, uh, ignorantly, I believe, neglected, or at least